Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to to the hill country, to the city of Judah, And entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord or magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has regard. He has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the mysterious facts that are facts nonetheless, which we read, given to us by the eyewitnesses. 
We thank you for the announcement of the birth of Christ. We're grateful that we get to listen in on the response of those that heard, whether it was Elizabeth or Mary or Zacharias and Simeon, the angels proclaiming glad tidings to shepherds who then went and saw this Jesus. We thank you for the report of the Magi and the wise men who traveled across their world to see one who would be born a king. God, we are grateful for the Old Testament prophecies that have come to fulfillment in Jesus and the things that Mary says that are yet to come and she speaks of them as if they are as good as finished. And we're grateful that these are things that aren't written just for them in that day, but for us as well. God, what a needy people we are. So we come to you today to celebrate your son, the great work of redemption on the day that he rose. We come to you to say that we want to be a people whose whole hearts are toward you. We want to love you. And we want to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. We want to love you in such a way and to walk with you in such a way that we can turn and love the people that we work with live with, worship with, the people that we see when we walk out our door in the morning. God, we pray that you would work in us in such a way that we would never be the same. We would be a people distinguished by the blessings that come only from the favor of a king who has surprisingly loved those who hated him. We ask that you would spread the honor of your son, that you would lift high his name, that you would magnify him through your people from east to west and north to south today. That from generation to generation, the mercy that Mary describes when she realizes that she will give birth to the Messiah, that we would see that mercy still continuing, not just to us, but to the next generation and the next and the next until you send your son in triumphant glory. God, we know that the world mocks the hope of the believer. And we know that within our own mind, doubts can crowd in. But we come to you without fear. You have spoken the truth. You don't lie. You don't even exaggerate your own goodness and faithfulness. You have kept your word. So we're coming again this morning and ask. We're asking you, God, would you stoop down and teach us? Would you take us by the hand? Would you lead us on a path of cheerful obedience? Would you fill our hearts and minds with realities that can never, never fade? But from year to year, as the sunrise from on high shines on our life, as that great dawn is approaching in this temporary night, this temporary spiritual darkness is fading. God, until we see your son face to face, will you give us all the help we need to live unto him, through him, by him, with him, so that he would be all and in all for us. God, we ask that those who are sick in the fellowship here, This little church, we have so many that are needy. We think especially of Jane and John again. And we ask that 
with them and others that doctors would be wise, precious time would not be wasted with uh, inadequate diagnoses, that medications that are given, that if it's your will, that their bodies would be strengthened, that it would be effective. But whatever you choose for them today, would you give them your presence, such a sense of you, that the reality of the omnipresent Savior would be to them more precious than health or the security of feeling like we know what tomorrow would bring. God, you are the treasure of your people and you always have been. So please, we pray, be their treasure this morning and throughout the day, their unchanging environment. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to stop and take a few weeks break from our regular theme and look at the birth of Christ. I want us to do it through a different lens than we've done it before. Normally, we, well, we've often returned to the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 7, 9, and 11 speaks of Emmanuel, God with us, the son that would bring salvation, the child on whom the father would place the government or the rule of all creation. Or the wonderful songs that, saw, that uh, Isaiah gives in 42 and 49 and 50 and 53, which really are my favorite Christmas passages because they describe in a progressive manner each song adding to the one that came before. They describe the person and the work of Christ in a way that kind of gets behind our familiarity, you know, uh, gets behind our armor and really gives us an opportunity to see Christ, perhaps in a way that we haven't thought of his birth. But this year, I want us to look at the birth of Christ, and I want us to see the descriptions or the responses of those people who either hear the announcement of the baby or who actually see Christ. And the responses are so varied. You can think of uh, the wise men who travel, you know, across the, the little world there for them and because they see a star and they realize through their studies that this star marks the birth of the king and they show up in Jerusalem and they meet with King Herod and they tell him that they're looking for the king born uh, and, and the, the sign of the star and Herod the king is jealous. He's he feels insecure. Herod's quite a cruel and wicked king. He, he's killed off everybody that he thinks could be a competitor to him. And now he hears that there's a prophesied king who will be born in, in Bethlehem. And so he asks those magi to go and worship this king and then bring back word and let him know exactly where he's at so he could worship him too. But we know that that's a lie. And God reveals that to these men. So after they go and worship before the uh, the child and present their gifts, they go back home. Herod is so angry when he realizes he's been duped by the wise men that he sends soldiers throughout the entire city of Bethlehem and all the surrounding regions. And every boy, every infant son, two years and younger, is murdered. The Old Testament prophesied this. Well, that's one response, and that's quite shocking. But then you think about 
the other responses. Think of the old man, Simeon. He's very old, but the Lord has promised him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And one day he goes to the temple to worship. And it happens to be the very same day that Mary and Joseph are presenting the, the baby Jesus uh, to the Lord as the Old Testament requires. And they're doing all that's required, presenting the sacrifices. And Simeon comes and takes the baby in his hands. And he says, this is this is the Messiah. I can die in peace now. This is the glory of Israel. This is the salvation that God sends. This is the light that God will send to the nations. And this child is appointed by his father from eternity past for the fall and rise of many. Quite an amazing response when all he's looking at is a baby. In fact, Luke in his book, gives us five different songs or poems that are written in response to the announcement or the sight of Christ. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Mary, in the Magnificat that we'll look at this morning. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. The angels who speak of the coming of Jesus to the shepherds, and then, as I mentioned, Simeon. All of those responses are in poetic form. So while these are uh, astonishing facts, mysterious facts, the God-man is coming. They are facts nonetheless, but they are facts that put song into the heart of a believer. Well, I want us to look at Mary's response to the angel's message and it will help us, I hope, in a number of ways. First of all, it does show us some things about Christ that are objective facts. These are true of Christ, regardless of what we think, regardless of what the world thinks, regardless of what any preacher says, and regardless of what he is to you. It is important that you be, answer, be able to answer the question, well, who is Christ to you? Um, it's life and death, but that is not the first question, the first question is not who is Christ to me, but who is he? And the things that Mary says give us uh, a number of fundamental facts about Jesus of Nazareth. Who do we see God to be and what do we expect Christ to do as we are guided by what uh, Mary says? Also, it helps us to know how to tune our thoughts and turn our hearts toward God this week. When we hear about Jesus of Nazareth, whether it's in a sermon or whether it's in your quiet time, studying throughout the day, verses you've memorized, things that you hear from other Christians, podcasts, sermons online, it doesn't matter where, you're hearing either the eyewitness accounts of the New Testament Gospels, the Old Testament prophecies, the letters of the New Testament to the baby Christians that explain what we're seeing. Every time you come into contact with facts about Christ, the things that Mary says are things that you should say. They're things that you can take to be true today as well. And because of that, Mary's uh, words about the coming of Christ, what that shows us about God what that means will be accomplished in the, in the plan of redemption. It does also give us a test. Do I think rightly of Christ? Do you think rightly of Christ? Do you have the right expectations when you hear again 
something about this baby that's coming. It's celebrated at Christmas. Well, let's look at that, but let's see the context first. What's the context of Mary's great statement here? Her song of faith, which we call the Magnificat, which by the way, Magnificat is just the Latin phrase for uh, I will magnify or, you know, Mary's, the, the opening statement of Mary's song, my soul magnifies the Lord. So we could call this the magnification of God through Mary. Well, what's the context of it? Well, we just read it. Uh, the angel Gabriel appears, and we'll go back just a little bit further. The angel Gabriel appears in Luke to Zacharias, the dad of John the Baptist. Now, Zacharias is a very old priest, and his wife is old, and they are far beyond the time where they could have children. She's gone through menopause. Her body couldn't naturally still bear children. She has, in fact, never had a child. She's been barren. But when Zacharias, when it's his turn to go into the temple, because there, there are a lot of priests and, uh, you know, your, your turn would be chosen. And so he would go in for his time of duty there and he's presenting the sacrifices and he encounters Gabriel, the angel. And Gabriel tells him what's about to happen. The Messiah is coming. And... He's telling it to Zacharias because Zacharias is going to be a dad. He's not the dad of the Messiah. He's the dad of the forerunner or the prophet, the preacher who will go ahead of the Messiah. He's John the Baptist's dad. Your wife's going to have a baby, he says. And your child is going to be the great prophet that the Old Testament talked about. He will go before Christ. He will prepare the way for the Messiah. He will tell the world who it is that's coming. And Zacharias is pretty confused by this announcement and says, how can I know that this is certain? How do I know this is really going to happen? And God is grieved. The angel of God is offended that Gabriel has this question. And so Gabriel is struck dumb. That is, he can't speak. And the angel says, you will not speak until the child is born and all these promises come to fulfillment and then you'll be able to speak. So it happens just as the angel says. Zacharias leaves the, the temple. He comes out and he can't talk. So for the next nine months, he's writing things down to communicate to his family. When John is born later... And uh, Mary says, we're going to name this kid John. The people around her say, uh, that's not one of your family names, Mary. Let's ask dad. And so he writes out, his name is John. And then his tongue is loosed and he says wonderful things. After the announcement to Zacharias, the angel appears to Mary. Such a different setting, isn't it? She's not in the holy place presenting sacrifices. She's not a priest. She's, she has no position of honor. She's probably a very young woman. And she is engaged to get married to Joseph. But they're not significant people. They're not people that the world would notice. They are from the tribe of Judah, though. 
And so, as they're looking forward to their wedding day, the angel uh, meets with Joseph and explains the coming of Jesus, why Mary is pregnant. But the angel also meets with Mary and explains to Mary why she's going to be pregnant. A virgin is going to conceive and have a baby. And this unique birth, which produces the unique man, the God-man, is explained. And we're going to talk about that more next week. So I want to leave that. So the angel explains these things to Mary, and she is so excited, but she is a little confused as well. And she has some questions for the angel. How is this going to happen? I have never known a man. I'm not married. How am I going to have a child since I'm a virgin? And so the angel explains that it will be by the work of the Holy Spirit that the the All power of God will overshadow her. And this infinite power of the creator will unite his eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, to humanity in the womb of this young woman. And her response is wonderful. She says, basically, I am glad for God to do whatever he wants to do with me. I am his bond slave. I trust him. Now, the Bible says that after that, the angel leaves and Mary hurries. She rushes to her her, uh, relative's home, to Elizabeth's home, the mother of John the Baptist, the wife of Zacharias, and she gets into the house and she greets Elizabeth. Now, we don't know from this statement, whether the greeting includes, you know, this outburst of Elizabeth, an angel appeared to me, and she gives her the, you know, the summary, and Elizabeth then praises God and says the thing she says, or does she just come in and greet Elizabeth like, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth looks at her, and by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth is aware of all that's going on. Mary is at this time already pregnant, and Elizabeth who's way ahead of her in the pregnancy, she bursts forth in this, in, in, with a loud voice and she cries out things about the baby that Mary is carrying and what that means. So Elizabeth gives this joyful declaration. And I do want to stop before we get to the Magnificat and just notice a couple of things. Look at the faith of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is looking at a young woman who's never been married and she is pregnant. I doubt that at this point in the pregnancy, Mary is even showing, but she knows what the angel has told her husband. And she knows either supernaturally or through what Mary has explained that Mary is pregnant, though a virgin, and this will be the Messiah, the God-man. And though she cannot see this unborn son, she refers to him as her Lord. The child that Mary carries is the master of Elizabeth, is the owner of Elizabeth. That's what Lord means. Here is the one who made me. Here is the God who rules me. It's quite a faith to see that when she's just looking at a young lady. She refers to Mary as being blessed by God. And later in the Magnificat, Mary mentions this as well. But notice what Elizabeth says. She is blessed because she believes that God will fulfill his word. It is not 
how strong a Christian's faith is that makes them a blessed person. It is that you believe in a God that has never lied. That even though you haven't seen Christ with your own eyes, you believe and you rejoice with joy unspeakable at times full of glory. You haven't had that privilege of seeing Christ, but you have the privilege of honoring the word of God and the God who gave us that word by risking everything based on the fact that you know that that is the one being who doesn't lie. How blessed is Mary for believing the words of God because God always keeps his word. If God didn't keep his word, Mary isn't blessed. And it's the same for the Christian. How enviably happy you are as an object of God's undeserved friendship because you believe what God says about himself, about you, about the Savior, about the birth, the life, the death, the, the cross, the grave, the throne. And believing these things, you are happy because God keeps his word. Paul says, if God doesn't keep his word, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, well, then we are to be most pitied of every person on the planet because we hope in this empty fiction. By the way, what's the word blessed mean? Well, oftentimes we just kind of sum it up by saying enviably happy. So, so treated by God in such a way that we are satisfied, that we are complete, that we are full, we are happy. But if we want to be a little more careful than that, being a blessed person in the sense of the scripture, the how it speaks, it's not just the happiness or the joy. That's the result of it. I am filled with happiness because I'm a blessed person. But to say that Mary is blessed and to say that a Christian likewise is blessed is really talking about their circumstance in God's eyes, their, their state of being. A blessed person is a person that God has turned toward you and made you the object of his friendship. To be blessed in this sense is to be a person that from eternity past, AC spoke about it this morning in the prayer meeting, that God has set his love on you from eternity past and the king of everything who still holds everything into existence, who made everything, who rules everything, has befriended you, has made you an object of his love, his delight, his active friendship. If such a king were your king, if such a king made you the object of his peculiar interest, if he were focused on you with kindness, you can see that that description is, uh, is appropriate. I am a person whose life is enviably blessed. I am happy because I am the object of an undeserved friendship from God. And what is said of Mary could be said of every Christian. She says later in the Magnificat, every generation of people, forever and ever, people will look at me and they'll say, because of what God did, she, she is the object of, of favor and she is happy in the Lord. But that word is used of every Christian later in the, in the New Testament. 
Every Christian will be forever distinguished as the object of God's undeserved favor. The friend of the king. Well, let's look at the Magnificat. Let's look at how Mary, in response to what the angel says to her, how does she magnify the Lord? And that right there is a, a, raises another question. How do you magnify a God who is big? How do you magnify a God who is infinite? Can you make him bigger? If he were just really, really, really big, we could say, well, there's, well, there's room to grow. There's always room to grow. You could always be bigger. If he's just the biggest and a lot bigger than everything else in all creation added together, we could still say, well, we could make him, maybe we could make him a little bigger. But if he's infinite, that, mean, that means there's no measure, there's no limit, there's no edge to God. He is without any limitation. How can you magnify that? And the word, as the New American Standard translates it, doesn't mean to make bigger, but to exalt or to lift up. A simple illustration would be, think of the night sky. And if you're a person who likes the, you know, to look at the stars, at the moon, and you take your telescope out and you set it there and you know which constellation you're looking at and where it will be at what time in the night at this date, you know, where we are. And so you look and you see the Pleiades or whatever stars you like. You see the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. And you look at these stars that are so much bigger, exponentially bigger than our whole planet. But in the sky, they look like a tiny thing. And if you're not thinking correctly, you think, wow, that star's it's pretty little. I mean, you can only see it on a clear night in certain times. But, of course, that little bit of light represents... Uh, a, a star, a sun, much larger usually than ours. So we take the telescope out and we point it at the star so as to magnify it. That is, something that is so infinitely above us, so far from us, we want to make it clear. We want people to be able to see, you know, you say to your friend, no, no, look through there. Yeah, right there. Uh, okay, wait, let me make, yeah, it's positioned right. Look through there. Do you see that? We want all of our friends, we want our family, we prayed for them this morning in the prayer meeting, God, we want them to see how big you are, how infinitely big you are, how indescribably big you are. We want to exalt you. In the Magnificat, you can see that Mary begins with statements about God and herself. God has done this for me, and that's a great place to start. We'll talk about it later. It's really the only place to start. It doesn't do any good to tell people how great God is if he is not your God. But after starting with the personal, God has done great things for me. You don't stop there. But having met the king and find, finding him to be so good, we want to go to everyone that we love. We want to go to our neighbors. We want to talk to our coworkers, And we want to tell them, about God in such a way that magnifies him in front of their, their eyes. We want to stick a spiritual you know, telescope in front of their eyes and say, look, no, no, look there. Do you see it? Do you see how high and exalted he is? Mary wants to magnify the God who is her salvation. The baby she is carrying 
who is the God-man, is the one who will save her soul. Well, let's look at what she says. She says some things about God, and she says some things not just about his character, but also about his activity. So who God is and what God does. And remember, these are things that come from hearing that the Messiah is now conceived in her womb. Knowing that the baby will be born makes Mary say some things about God. Knowing that Jesus will be born makes her say some things about what God is doing. Who God is, what God does. So let's look at the who God is. Well, in verse uh, 46 through 50, she says these things. Look particularly at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Verse 49 and 50. Let me take three things from there. I want to um, take them in a, a different order. She says, he is the mighty one. He is merciful and his mercy is upon generation after generation of those that fear him. So he is mighty, he is merciful, and he is holy. He is mighty. When we speak of the strength of God, we're talking about strength unlike anything we've ever seen before. We know something about strength. We, we see the power of what we think of the power of nature in storms. We see the abilities that God has given humans. There are things that are powerful all around us, but everything that we see that has power, it is a power that is on loan from God. It is a power that God has given them. Power is the ability to do things. And God possesses an unlimited and immeasurable ability to do all his good pleasure. When God desires to do something, he does it. And unlike us, nothing can interrupt it. Nothing can restrain it. Nothing can even delay it. God does all his perfect will from heaven. There is nothing that that is a barrier to God accomplishing his plans. There's nothing that distracts God and gets him off course. There's nothing that makes it so God cannot do it. In fact, possessing infinite strength, there is nothing that is harder for God than something else. It's not as if easy things, we tend to think this way, it's easy for God to save this kind of person, we think. Bo, bo, but this kind of person is very hard for God to save, and that's not true. God is infinite in power. There's no measure. There's, there's no saying, well, I'm reaching closer to the end of God's power. And with infinite power, everything is equally easy for God. Now, this is the God that when Mary hears from the angel, you will give birth as a virgin to a son. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the son of God. Call him Jesus. He will save us from our sins. When she hears that report, something that she recognizes immediately is that God is almighty. He is the mighty one who keeps his word in spite of all opposition. He is mighty in the way that he brings his son into the world. He describes that later. The angel says, when she says, how can this actually happen? The angel says, the infinite power of God will overshadow you. 
How can you combine things that are so vastly different? They don't go together. How can you bring together things that are infinitely separated from each other? They're not near each other. It's not as if the, the best of humanity and the least aspect of God, you know, that there's only a few feet there. And if you just really pull hard, you could kind of get them together. Who God is is unlike anything else. God is the uncreator, uncreated creator. He is the holy other than us. He is not like the angels. He is not like creation. He is not like the stars. He is not like the galaxies. He is not like the best of humanity. It's not just that he is morally clean. It is that he is essentially separate. He is in a category all to himself. His glory is solitary, A.W. Pink says in his little book on the attributes of God. It's a wonderful word. He is solitary. Not that he's all alone and lonely, but if we think of God and in whatever way we're thinking of God, whatever attribute, whatever quality we're thinking of that the Bible describes, if we're thinking correctly, we are thinking of something that isn't like anything else. It is incomparable. God is powerful, God is love, God is pure, holy, righteous, God is faithful, patient, and we understand those words, but when we come to thinking about God, we move from any category that we have into a completely other category, the category of mystery, and we say to God, as much as my little brain can understand, I have what you say in scripture, and I can say certain things about you, and they're true things, but God, it doesn't really begin to just, it just touches the edge. We're, we're not in the deep end of the pool, we're on the very edge of an ocean. You are the incomparable God, nothing is like you, really. The power that operates in the union of infinite godness, deity, the nature of God, the fullness of God, Paul says in Colossians 1, again in Colossians 2, is united to humanity, dwells in Jesus, the human, truly, bodily, fully, the Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons of the triune God, each possess equally, simultaneously, right, eternally, all the fullness of the divine nature. It's not one-third, one-third, one-third. And I know that's a mystery to us. That's not how we are. But that's the way God is. And that means that when the Son of God is united to humanity in the womb of a young woman, in those earliest days, where that begins to develop, he is undiminished, infinite God in the womb. He is in the womb dependent on Mary's body for his human life to develop. And at the same time as God, he rules over all the worlds alone, like we just read. Later, after birth, he will be dependent upon Mary for food while being held in the arms of a young virgin, a young mom. He will rule everything. He is sustaining the galaxies while being held in the hands of a young Jewish woman. 
When God unites himself to humanity, uniting his, the Son, the eternal Son, into humanity in Mary's womb, he is still undiminished God. And that can only be accomplished by infinite power. But also, he is merciful. When Mary hears of the birth of Jesus and she's going to be the mother, she's amazed at mercy. Not just mercy toward her, but mercy that will go from generation to generation throughout the whole world until the end of time. Think of the mercies that Mary says are sure now that she hears that Jesus will be born. Mercy is a form of God's love. There are so many words the New Testament uses, Old Testament as well, to describe the, the benevolence of God toward us. Mercy is the kind of love that looks upon a person in misery who is helpless. And the heart is moved to pity and compassion. There's tenderness in mercy. And the mercy is active and not just sentimental. So when Mary hears that the Messiah is going to be born, she knows that God's mercy has been active and will be active generation after generation. And she quotes the Old Testament. Those that fear the Lord, those that believe God and believe in God, they stand in awe of him. You know, they are so, they, they are shrunk before the infinite God and glad to be. They feel their smallness. They feel his bigness. God can never again be a light matter to a Christian because we have met him by faith through his son. And those who believe, described here as God-fearers, to those who believe, generation after generation, dads and sons and grandsons, to the end of time, Mercy will rest upon them. Or as David says in Psalm 5, it will surround them wherever they go. Or again, as the Bible says, they will be new every morning. Think about just a few of these things. It's too easy to be kind of vague and general. When Mary hears from the angel, you will be pregnant. And it is a unique pregnancy. It will be by the power of God. And this child is the Messiah Hearing that announcement, she knows that God's mercy, in a sense, has clothed itself with power, and it is the right time for it to come and to accomplish all that was promised. This mercy will come through Christ and conquer our enemy. This mercy will come and conquer us, opening our eyes altering our hearts and souls, giving us a love for a God that we were disinterested in, making us alive in Christ, giving us faith and repentance that will never end until the end of time. He will be our Christ. We will be united to him. He will supply everything we need. When Mary hears of the announcement of the birth of a baby, she knows that God's mercy will reach the sinner, not just washing the sinner free from our shame by the cross, but clothing us with the obedience of Jesus and then declaring us forever to be right with God. This mercy that will come, and she knows it's come because of the birth 
will cause the enemy of God, who is conquered by God's grace, to become the child of God, the daughter of God, the son of God. And the child of God will be sustained and daily transformed. And when Christ comes in his glory, this child of God will be gathered with every other child of God. And the announcement of the birth of the baby from Gabriel lets Mary know that one day every believer will be gathered at the end of time and when Christ appears in his glory and this old creation is rolled up and done away with and a new creation is made, the believer will be glorified, will be made complete with the same glory that Christ bears. All of this is packed into the announcement that God is keeping his word and his son is coming. The holiness of God. Power, mercy, holiness. Holiness just means separateness. God transcends. We've already talked about that. And God is morally pure. And both of those are called into question when someone tells you the uncreated creator is going to be a human. And he's going to embrace sinful humanity. And he's going to bear the sin of his people on a cross. And the question comes to the mind of any thinking person, well, is he sacrificing his holiness somehow? We know that he's not less God when he's the God-man, but is he less holy? If he's the undiminished deity, is he also undiminished in purity? How can the uncreated God unite himself with something in creation and still be infinitely separate? How can this God-man, as AC pointed out last week in the prayer meeting, how can he identify himself with sinners in the baptism? How can he call sinners to himself? How can he love sinners? How can he bear their specific sin on himself before the Father and be punished for that and him remain untainted, unstained? Still infinitely separate in his essential deity, infinitely pure. But he does. And when Mary hears the birth of Jesus, she knows God is holy. One issue that Paul deals with in Romans 3 that we often mention is the question of how could God have forgiven all those Old Testament people we read about how can Adam or Eve, how can, you know, Noah, how can David or any of the prophets, how can any of the Old Testament men or women or children look at God and God knowing everything about them declare them to be right? How can they be forgiven if the Bible says that God will by no means clear the guilty or, or uh, you know, overlook sin? And the answer is through the coming of Jesus Christ. The announcement that the God-man is coming is the demonstration above everything else that God is holy because this God-man will not only obey the law that we didn't obey, but will suffer the penalty for your disobedience. Christian, Christ, the God-man, and all that's wrapped up in his labors shows in a way that nothing else before or after will show 
It shows that God is serious about purity. God has not reduced his holiness, not one millimeter, to bring his enemies into his family. He is holy. What does he do? Well, in verse 51 and following, 51 through 55, Mary describes what he does. He has done mighty deeds, she says, and then she begins to list them. But look at what she says in 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. A couple of things to notice there. First, the metaphor, his arm. It is speaking of God as if he were human, but he is not human. God doesn't have hands, fingers, eyes, eyelashes, hair, ears, arms, feet. God is spirit. When we see the Bible describe God in these ways, we understand that it's God stooping down to speak to us like a parent stoops down to speak to their young child who couldn't understand adult language. So instead of talking to your two-year-old as if he or she is in college, we kneel down and we say, well, it's kind of like, and we give them something they can understand. And that's what God does with these pictures. The arm of God is a picture for humans who can't understand. The Bible talks about God's activity. It talks about his hands. It talks about his arms. But when it talks about his arms, a couple of things really jump out. One is God is being active, like we are with our arms. Second, God is active in a powerful way. It's not just fingers and hands, it's arms. And third, the activity of God is not just through some tool. Christ is not called the hammer of God, you know. He is the arm of God. Back in Isaiah 53, Isaiah describes the coming of Jesus this way. He says, who has believed our message? Verse 1 of Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So he starts that passage by talking about the arm of God, the activity, the strength of God. But as he goes on, he quickly says, the arm is a he. And that's what Mary is saying. God has stretched out his arm. He is about to do something that will demonstrate, as she's already said, God-like might. But the arm is a person. It's his son. The unborn son who is even at that moment developing in Mary's womb, he is the embodiment of the infinite strength of God. And he will do certain things. And that's the second thing I want you to notice. What follows from here on out through verse 55, you have a series of verbs that are all past tense. Why? Mary says, he has, he has, he has, he has already, he has already. When I hear from an angel that the Messiah is coming, that I will bear him. In fact, by the time she gets to Elizabeth, I'm already pregnant with the Messiah. When I 
understand that the God-man has been united, that God has been united to humanity in my womb. The God-man, the Emmanuel promise has come. Then I know these things so well, so sure are they that they're past tense. There is a way that the prophets speak sometimes in the Old Testament. We see this again in the new here. The prophetic past, it's a strange way of talking. It's talking about future things using past tense words. We would say it like this. When Mary hears the Messiah's coming, then she knows that God has kept his word. And that means everything that God has said he will do, it is as good as accomplished. Even though in time, it hasn't yet happened. So look at the things she says. He has done mighty things with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in, their, in the thoughts of their hearts. He brought down rulers. He lifts up the humble. He filled, past tense, the hungry with good things. He sent away the rich, empty-handed. He has given help, past tense, to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, which he spoke long ago. Now, God did, we could say, do all these things in order to reach the point where his word is being kept. He's toppled empires. He's protected his people. He's scattered the proud. He's given the, the needy, the hungry food to eat and sent away the arrogant and the self-sufficient hungry. He has kept his word. But all of these things that are mentioned are things that are continuing to happen and will continue to happen until Christ comes. The spread of the kingdom, the accomplishment of our rescue, everything that we know that follows his birth and precedes the return of Christ could be said in past tense. Let's look at them quickly. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts now, these are hidden things. They, when we're proud, we usually know enough to keep our mouth shut in certain circumstances. We don't show up at work and usually say to people, you know, it's a fine Monday because I'm here and I am obviously the most significant person in this company. If you talk like that, you know, you eat lunch by yourself for the rest of your life. You remember Joseph telling his brothers, God has said, I'm, I'm going to be great in you guys are all going to bow down to me. Well, God did give that dream to him, but he probably could have kept that for a while to himself. If you go around telling people how great you think you are, it can be embarrassing. But most of us in our pride, which is the disease that sinners have, we hide it in our hearts. Think of it. We feel that we're self-sufficient. If we have problems, we think, well, these problems might cause other people to crumble, but, but I can handle it because I'm stronger than other people. We're spiritually self-sufficient in our minds. I can handle it. I'm a spiritual grown-up. Later, Jesus in Matthew 11 says that God hides the good news from the spiritual grown-ups who think they can handle everything. We feel that we're grown up. We feel that we're strong. We feel that we're pretty wise. I have some problems. Don't worry. I can figure it out. I don't need your advice. I don't even need God's. We're spiritually clean. And in these arrogant thoughts, and we have them even when we come to church, 
I'm strong. I'm clean. I'm wise. I can figure things out. I can fix these things. At least I'm stronger and cleaner and wiser than the people around me. In that arrogance that's hidden behind a, you know, a, a Christian facade. God sees it. And the Bible says that when Mary heard that Jesus was going to be born, she knew that every person that hid those proud thoughts in their hearts, that really describes their life. Every one of them has already been scattered. Think of the word scatter. It's a word that is used when armies come together and one army is so successful, the other army is beaten, but it's not one of those orderly retreats. It's, it's a rout. You know what a rout is. A rout is when our army number one beats army number two, but army number two is so beaten, things are so bad, every soldier thinks it's every man for himself. And he throws his weapons down and just runs. Everyone just runs different directions. They've just been scattered. There's no recovering from that kind of a battle. That army doesn't retreat in an orderly way to fight again another day in another situation. When Christ's birth is announced, Mary knows that arrogant humanity is like the routed army and they will throw their weapons down that they use to fight against God and they will flee for their lives and there will be no recovery. Second, this arm of God, this baby in her womb means that all the rulers of the world will be thrown down and the humble nobodies will be lifted up. And this is not saying that every ruler is evil and every nobody is righteous. In the book of Isaiah, in that second song that Isaiah writes about Christ, Isaiah 49 when he complains, and this was mentioned again in our prayer time, that, you know, that when Christ comes to the Jews, the Jews aren't embracing him. They're turning their back on him. And he complains to the Father. He pours his heart out and says, you know, the people you sent me to, it seems as if it's ineffective. And the Father says to the Son, it is too small a thing for you to just save people from Israel. I've sent you to save people from every nation. You're going to rule over everything, not just, not just Judah. Christ has been sent to rule everything. In that song, Isaiah 49, it goes on to say that kings and princes will come and bow before you. How many times Christ has conquered the great and made them gladly embrace his rule. But if they will not embrace his love, now in the judgment, they will be forever thrown down. There are people in the world, there always have been, who appear unassailable. They look like they are self-sufficient. They look like they do have everything they need. They're strong. They're wealthy. They're admired. They're untouchable. They're arrogant. And we think, and they'll never get what's coming to them. And that is not true. Because a baby was born, and when Mary heard that the baby was being born, she knew that every arrogant ruler of the world, every judge that rules against the king, every king who pretends that the king and what he says doesn't matter, 
every empire that stands in God's way, it will all be thrown down. And every nobody, the humble, the needy, the ones that aren't secure and safe and self-ruling, in Christ, if they embrace Christ, they are lifted up. Do you remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 40 about God and the great rulers of the world? In verse 21, he says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He, it is God. It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He reduces the rulers of earth to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Did you hear what the Supreme Court ruled this week? Well, it's meaningless when it goes against God. These are people that we are impressed with. Their power impresses us. Their, their, their influence and rule and governing affects us. But to God, to the Messiah that's in the womb of Mary, they are nothing. They're meaningless. Now you say, well, I'm not a king. I'm not some great wealthy titan of industry. You know, I, I don't own Walmart. I'm not this self-sufficient noble, exalted person. Yeah, but we can be that way in our hearts. We can be just like King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of Babylon, pagan nation, that God raised up. And God explains to Nebuchadnezzar, I'm raising you up because I'm going to hand Israel and the whole region over to you so that you can discipline my people because they have worshiped idols. I've explained it to them. I'm explaining it to you. Nebuchadnezzar gets everything God gives him. Everywhere he goes, it's like God opens the door for him and kicks in, you know, the gates of the enemies and just hands him over. And that Nebuchadnezzar, when he grows old, becomes very proud of being the leader of a great empire. And Daniel is alive during this time. Do you remember? And in the book of Daniel, God speaks to Daniel and there's this, gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream and gives Daniel the explanation. And the dream is a warning to Nebuchadnezzar that he is not to be arrogant and think that he did all of this because he knows God did. And so Daniel pleads with him, do not be arrogant, Nebuchadnezzar. Do not think that you did this. You know that God gave you this. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes careless and he walks out on the top of his palace one night. It, you know, you can imagine it's a beautiful clear sky. He looks around at this amazing city of Babylon and it was amazing. And he thinks of the empire and how many countries he's trampled and he says in his heart, look at this great thing that I've done. And God strikes him with madness. And for the next seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is insane and acts like an animal and eats stuff off the ground like an animal and lives outside and his fingernails and his hair grow and they can't help him. They can't control him. There's no cure. So they have to take this great king and put him in the back, you know, in the fenced-in yard where nobody will see him for seven years until finally he admits that God is God and not Nebuchadnezzar, and God heals him. By the way, when do you think Nebuchadnezzar really showed his insanity? When he had the long fingernails and the crazy hair and he was eating like an animal? Or when he said on the top of his roof, wearing 
all of his royal clothing and looking very, you know, impressive when he said, I did it. I did it. Which one's the madness? It's as if the seven years of madness, that was just letting the stuff in the heart come out where everybody could see it. Nebuchadnezzar is insane. Have you never been a Nebuchadnezzar? Have you never looked at your family? It's not a great city. It's just a little family. Your marriage, your kids, do they love the Lord? Do you ever walk out on the top of your little house, so to speak, and look at your wife and kids or look at your husband and kids, look at your grandkids and say, I did this. I'm such a good Christian. Do you ever look at this church and say, I did this? Do you ever look in the mirror and say, I did this? We can all be like Nebuchadnezzar. And the birth of Jesus Christ, the announcement, just the announcement, he's coming. Mary can say, it makes it sure, past tense kind of sure. You will be thrown off your pretended throne and the needy will be exalted. Paul talks about the exaltation. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2, God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved, raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Well, quickly, he goes, she goes on. He feeds the hungry and sends the full away empty. We're not just talking about physical food, but spiritual food. Matthew talks about this. Blessed or happy or the objects of God's infinite friendship. Who are they? The ones who are spiritually hungry. There is an ache in my soul that the world can never fill. And I am not satisfied with its temporary emptiness. I long to be right with God. I want to know God. I want to be brought to God. How can a person like me have peace with God? I hunger for righteousness. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, they'll be filled. This child that is announced guarantees every person who is spiritually satisfied by what you can get Without Christ, you will be sent away empty-handed, starving forever. And every person who comes to God and says, nothing but you satisfies, you will be given a banquet. Like David says, when God spreads a table, even in front of our enemies. Fourth, the announcement that the Babe will be born. Mary says it is, it is sure. It's past tense kind of sure. God's kept all of his promises. They'll all be kept. 4,000 years of promises from the beginning to this point. Promises to Adam and Eve, promise to Noah, promise to Abraham, especially we think of that covenant. We'll talk about all these next week. Promise to Isaac, promises to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to Judah, to the tribe of Judah. Promises made from the prophets. Everything that, that the prophets said about the Messiah. Every song that David wrote about the Messiah. It's all as good as done. Not one of those will fail. When Mary hears of the birth of the Messiah through her. She knows that God has kept 
all of his promises and will continue to do so. Well, a couple of quick applications. When we see what people say about Christ, we sing the song this morning, we sang it, um, who is he? Well, we could ask Mary, well, who is he? And she tells us. What Mary says about Christ is true, and that has to be what you're hoping in. It has to be what changes you, what you live on. But not just what Mary says, but how Mary believes it. Was it effortless for Mary to say those things? Well, no. When the angel met Mary and Gabriel explains all these wonderful things and tells her her part in this, she doesn't say, great. I can't wait. She says, excuse me, how? You know, every Christian feels that question, don't you? True Christian, you read the gospel, you read what God says about you, that you are his child, that you are indwelt by his spirit, that you will be transformed into the image of Christ, that sin will not be your master, that you will live forever and ever with him in a new creation. Are all those things just fictional, mythical phrases to you that, that kind of, you know, give you an idea of, you know, they, they, they pass on good morals like, you know, you ought to live differently because of these wonderful stories. No, the Christian says these are not fiction. They're not mythical. These are facts. They're mysterious, but they're facts. They're facts that aren't yet accomplished. But because God says them, they're facts. They're past tense in my mind. It's as good as done. But it's not effortless for any Christian to live on those things. Faith is a fight, Paul says to Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. That's the fight. You will be faced with a thousand opportunities to call God a liar like Adam and Eve and choose sin. And in each of those, you will have to fight to believe. How does Mary believe? She has questions. And when the angel answers the questions, she accepts the answer and gladly entrusts everything to God. What a helpful pattern. It's not effortless. Sometimes there's questions that come to our mind. God, how can this be? Why me? Why love me? How can these words that the gospel describes be me? I know me. I wouldn't say those words about me ever. Why does a holy God say those words about me? I know that I've embraced Christ. I have no hope but Christ, but I'm such a poor disciple. I'm such a sluggish follower. I'm so inconsistent, so quick to doubt, so quick to be distracted. How can you say the things the new covenant says about me? How can they be real? And we go back to the scriptures and we see how. And the only appropriate response is, I am your Bond slave God, I belong to you. Do whatever you want with me. I trust you. Why does Mary ask the question and get a nice response, and Zacharias asks a question at the end of what Gabriel says? And the same angel, Gabriel, strikes him dumb, takes away his voice. Think about the two different questions. Earlier in the chapter, Zechariah says, how can I be sure about this? Well, I mean, God just said it to you. And so he's asking, yeah, yeah, but it's kind of hard to believe God. Can you give me some 
extra signs? I mean, other than this angel that's just met me, can you, can you do a little more? Then I'll believe you. Guys, the question comes from doubt and it offends God. This is not a young girl, a young woman. This is a priest who's walked with God who's old, who's seen the faithfulness of God, who's seen God keep his word, but he doubts God. And so he's struck dumb. Mary, a young woman who's, going to, who's told something far more hard to believe than you're going to have a child in your old age and he'll be a great prophet. You're going to bear the son of God as a virgin the power of God will accomplish this. It's never been done before. Nobody's ever heard of this. It'll never be done again. This is the one time that God will act this way, and you're the one he's going to do it with. And Mary says, but how, how will you do that? That question is rooted in belief, not doubt. It is because Mary believes the announcement of the angel that she has questions. And those questions, Christian, do not offend God. It is because of what God says in the new covenant promises. If that's, if believing my God tells the truth, and yet when I look at the world and I look at myself, I, I look around me, I can't, I don't understand how he's going to do this. It's okay to go to God and say, it's because I believe that the Bible is not a list of fables, a, a collection of stories, that I'm coming and asking you this. I believe you'll do this. How? One question comes from doubt. How am I going to be sure that you're going to keep your word? The next question comes from belief. I believe the announcement. The Messiah will come through me, Mary, unmarried. And because of that, I've got questions. How? You can see that if Mary thought this was all some religious fable, she wouldn't have any questions. And some of you come to church each week and you're not bothered by any spiritual questions. You don't stay awake asking God questions. You don't agonize over things. When, the, when life around you doesn't look anything like what the scripture says, when your life doesn't look like this, what the scripture says, a believer's life would look like, when, when the church doesn't look the way it's supposed to look according to scripture, you don't stay up and lose sleep. You don't wrestle with the Lord. You don't say to God, God, I need answers, please. Because you don't think that any of it's real enough to bother with. But the genuine believer is often bothered because you believe. And so you go to God. When we look at the Magnificat, there's a, a, a super simple pattern that you can use throughout every day of the life of a Christian. But just think of now to the end of the year. Every time you read or hear about this Messiah who was born to Mary, every time you read or see something Christ is doing in the scriptures, can you not take those simple statements of Mary's and make them your own? You're reading the Gospels, you see the activity of Jesus, it doesn't matter what it is, teaching, healing, whatever, dying, being born, raised, ruling. Can you not look at that and every time you see one of those say, he is almighty, merciful, and holy. He has scattered the proud. 
He has thrown down the great and raised up the nobodies. He has turned the hungry, uh, the, the fool away and invited the hungry to himself. He has kept his word. Well, I'll end with the poem. It's by Gerhard Terstegen. Terstegen, I think, uh, early 19th century. I'm a little fuzzy on his dates. Terstegen wrote this. It's, it's a poem that I wrote in the front of my spiritual journal when I first became a Christian. I'll give you just a verse. He's talking about seeing Christ, the greatness of God in Christ. I have seen the face of Jesus. Tell me not of aught beside. I have heard the voice of Jesus. All my soul is satisfied. All around this earthly splendor, earthly scenes lie fair and bright, but my eyes no longer see them for the glory of that light of Christ. Well, let's follow Mary in her hope in Christ and treating those promises as facts. Our glorious King, we want to have the same things grip our hearts that gripped Mary's. And not just in general, not just vague, but for us and for those that we love and for this whole world that we would live on the realities of Christ, even those promises that have not yet been fully kept, that we would live on them as facts. And it wouldn't just be doctrine. It would be our song. Help us, God, for the glory of your Son in our own day, we ask. Amen.